the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, Tampa Bay. Good morning, Florida. Good morning, world. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm coming at you on WGUL860 AM. We are the answer. We are also talk radio interactive. So if you would like to join the show, just give us a shout. You can reach me in the Tampa Bay area at 813-289-1860 or toll free at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. If you have a computer and a headset, I'm at 860WGUL.com worldwide. Click Listen Live in the upper left there, and between 9 and 10 a.m. every Sunday, you'll get me. So that's who we are. Now, here's what we are. We are Dr. Bill, and Dr. Bill picks a topic to talk about every week, does some research on it, and also invites people to join him in the discussions And I also ask a question or two most of the time, and I'll give out a $25 gift certificate to two people who can call and answer my questions. We'll get to that a little later in the show. Well, as you may or may not know if you're just joining the show, a lot of my material or my ideas for shows come from sitting in the doctor's lunchroom. It is just a wonderful place to hear all kinds of uh, fact and fiction and fantasy, and it's, uh, it's really kind of fascinating. We have one of the guys, I'll call him Ferdy, and he got involved in the real estate business back at the 2000 era, and he and some buddies started buying farmland, tomato fields, and cow pastures, and they bought it close to bigger growing areas, and then they would get it rezoned for housing, and they would do the plotting of it, the plats, the the layout for the subdivision, and then they would turn around and sell it to developers. Well, they did one, and they made 500000 on it, a group of guys. They said, well, let's put it all back in and do another one. Then they made a million, so they turned around and bought an even bigger piece of property. So they worked their way up without withholding anything from their their winnings or earnings, whatever you want to call it, and... When the market crashed in 07, they got burned because they couldn't sell it, the last piece of property. They had a mortgage on it in order to leverage their way up, and they lost everything. And 
this Dr. Ferdy, he said that it's unbelievable how the banks can just come in and take over your assets without any, any warning or anything. Well, that's a reason to read the fine print when you sign those loans, guys. And he starts talking about the Federal Reserve and how this is all a big plot by international moneyed families, and there's only four or five. <clears throat> and there are some some areas on the website where you can find this information. And uh, there's one by, there's one called Who Owns the Fed? And I don't know who it's by, but I think the guy's name is Han, H-A-N. And he's got this whole chart of the Rothschilds and Henry Schroeder and the governor of the Bank of England back at the turn of the last century and all these people that were involved and they owned stock in the big New York banks and that the Fed was funded initially by this. Of course, this isn't really true. It's it's not substantiated anywhere, and, and it's it's not even an entity that goes out and solicits funds to operate. The Federal Reserve Bank is the arm of our government. It's an independent branch of the government set up by Congress in 1913 to help <clears throat> moderate the flow of money in and out of banks to help set interest rates and to help with the country's employment levels and generally to either cool down or heat up the economy depending on whether we are in an up or a down cycle. So it's a moderator. Why did we do this? Why did we establish this? Why did Congress put this into power in 1913? Well, we had a bank, a federal banking charter in the 1790s that Washington and Hamilton had brought in and the country had great prosperity between 1719 and uh, 1790 and 1800, 1805, really grew a lot quickly. There was a, another bank charter enacted in 1811 because there was a time limit on how long the initial charter would last. And then there was another bank charter in the 1830s. And whenever we didn't have a, a federal bank, we had economic hard times. And that was true after the Civil War and all the way into the 20th century. And there were intermittent panics and runs on banks in the, in the 1870s and 1907. And so Congress looked at this because the public was screaming. Well, of course you would scream, especially in that period because people didn't have credit cards. And the little guy couldn't get credit to buy a car or to buy a house. Everybody paid everything in cash. So it was even more important then that when you put your money into the bank, you were secure and you were not going to lose that money if there was a panic. That is that the bank would have enough money to give you your money and give everybody their money if they wanted to take it out. Of course, banks don't work that way. They borrow money. They lend money. When they borrow money, that's when you go in and open up a savings account or you run your commercial uh, checking account through them and they can use that money that sits in your checking account for short-term items. And then if you need it, uh, it's insured to be there to a certain degree. And all this, of course, requires some faith. We have to have faith in the system, faith in each other that we're going to meet our obligations. So if you don't pay your mortgage on time, then my bank account may not be readily accessible, so it's important that you and I meet our debts so that the banks stay solvent so that we can get the money out when we need it, <clears throat> whether it's a loan 
or pulling out our own savings that we have in the bank for things that we need. So in 1913, Congress enacted this law that created the Federal Reserve Bank, a national bank that would moderate the activity of all the other banks. Why did they do this? As I said above, there was a lot of turmoil in the financial markets and in the banking industry, and you weren't always sure that you were going to get your money out if there was a panic, if there was a little dip in the economy, and, and you lost your job and you had to go pull your savings out of the Bank of New York. And people got burned, and they were tired of it. You say, well, why didn't Congress just take this over and do it themselves? Well, as we all know, the left wing likes to print money and likes to make it cheap, that is, lower the interest rates. And this, of course, stokes inflation. Yes, everybody has some money, but it's not worth what it was last year or the year before. And on the right-hand side of the, of the aisle, the conservatives, as opposed to the liberals, they said, we shouldn't lend money to anybody unless they have really, really good balance sheet and they're a good risk. Why should I lend money to this guy who's a plumber over here? And he's never owned stock. He's never done anything but plumbing. He doesn't even have his own business. He's just one little guy with a little cart or a truck. Why should I lend money to him? Well, that guy may be a solid citizen, and he may be a great guy, and he may want to expand his business, put in another new truck, hire some more hands, and grow the business so he can make a little bit more money so that he can invest in things that he believes in or feels are going to come to fruition. So the compromise was that we would have an entity created by the federal government and ultimately answerable to Congress, but independent of Congress. So how does that work? Well, look, if, if you're created by Congress and you get Congress ticked off enough, they can end it. And they have in the past. They did in in the 1800s a couple of times. So the entity is in part funded by, and not in a great part, but in part funded by the big banks who own stock in it. You say, well, how the heck can you sell stock in the Federal Reserve Bank, and how does that work? Here's how it works. If you are a big boy in the national bank and you got big money, then you're expected to purchase stock which you cannot trade, you cannot do anything with it other than leave it sit inside of the Federal Reserve. It's not a huge sum of money for the, some of these big banks, and it pays 6% interest. Why are we paying interest to these guys? They're taking a risk by backing the Federal Reserve because they're the ones who are going to lose not only their stock investment, but also the backing of the Federal Reserve should we have a catastrophic uh, economic event like we had in 07 and 08. And so somehow, some way, we have to engender some uh, sense of faith and security, not only in each other, but also in the bankers and the bankers' faith in the government and the government's faith in the banking system. And you say, well, that sounds like basically we're just doing this all in air, in the air, that there's really nothing there to back it. Well, there really isn't. There really isn't. There, what there is to back it is, is the faith that you and I have in each other's ability to continue to do our job, to produce, to make money, uh, to spend wisely, and to help each other out, either directly through charitable organizations or indirectly through uh, 
bank loans or student loans or government loans or small business administration loans. And you say, okay, we the people will lend you, Dr. Bill, a million dollars to get your new office building and equip it. We think you're a pretty good risk. The SBA has vetted you. You're a 700, 750 credit score. You've been in business for 40 years. So we think you're a good risk. And I say thank you, and I get that million dollars. And I invested in what I say I'm going to invest it in. And I work hard, and I pay back my, my loan every month. I make my payments. And you guys, who had faith in me, are now reassured that you did the right thing. And so that money goes back into the system so somebody else can borrow or somebody else can be assisted or aided in some way with this. That's why we have the Federal Reserve. How's this thing structured? It, it's really uh, uh, quite fascinating how this whole thing is put together. And I took a look at this, and I was, uh, was kind of glad I did it. It was a lot of work and a lot of reading. But the structure of the Federal Bank and the Federal Reserve, the reason we did it, of course, is fear of, of, of not having stability in the markets. Why didn't we go through the Congress? Like I said, there was a fear that Congress would politicize it. And on the left, if they were in power, they'd print a lot of money and lower the interest rates. And on the right, they'd slow down the growth of money and raise the interest rates. Or they would give favoritism to the people who had backed them, just like all politicians do. Obama got the vote of the of the labor unions because he promised uh, – the auto workers, that he would make sure that when uh, GM and Chrysler fell, when they went bankrupt, which basically they did, it was a, you know an informal bankruptcy, that he would make sure that their pension plans and the, their health care plans were at least in part funded. So he got their backing. So we took that out of the hands of the politicians and put it into, uh, if, if you will, a publicly owned private institution. It's set up much like a corporation, and that's okay. There are banks who, if they want to be involved, or even if they don't want to be involved, if they're national banks, they have to buy into it. And they have to have so much money in stock in the federal bank. It's really not enough to make any difference in the overall economy, but at least it's a handshake to say that I'm committed. And the Federal Reserve, in turn, sets the rates for interest. They look at it daily. By the way, this, this entity, the Federal Reserve, is divided into 12 semi-independent Federal Reserve banks throughout the nation. It's geographically distributed. And the Bank of New York is, is uh, the most prominent because, of course, that was the first bank in the, in the country. The, the Hamilton's Bank was... Uh, I believe it was the, what we have now. The Bank of New York is the uh, is the child that has held on over the two and a half, two and a quarter centuries of our existence to morph into the Bank of New York, and so that's the bank with the longest history, with the most stability, and with the most knowledge. So it gets a little more uh, weighting. And then the Board of Governors are are elected, and by each district you elect your own board of governors and from that board of governors you get one chairman and then the chairman they go to Washington and they're part of the big committee and they elect a chairman and all these people have to be approved by the Senate just like 
the Senate has to approve all treaties that are made and all of the presidential appointments. So the president has the responsibility of formally appointing people to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve at the national level and of picking the chairman. Of course, this is not his decision alone. You know, the Board of Governors has a hand in it. Congress has a hand in it. All of the big banks have a hand in it. All of the little banks have a hand in it, too. Even the state-chartered banks have input. There are multiple committees, multiple levels of the way this thing works. There's a committee for the open market. There's a committee for the big banks. There's a committee for the, the smaller state-level banks. And they all work together, and they all have some input, relatively speaking, based upon their size and upon we the people, through our elected officials, desires of who they want to be in the positions of power in the Federal Reserve. And why do we do this? Well, the monetary policy of our nation has to be set by something or someone. And our experience with 50 states, with 50 different state banking charters, and 50 different state lending institutions and saving institutions whose regulations may not be the same in Florida as they are in Georgia has not worked for us. And there are good banks who hold cash in reserve without being told, and then there are banks who way overextend themselves. And that still happens. You know, they doctor up the books. But for the most part, most of the banks behave, and there are a set of federal regulations and a way of binding all 50 states into one central banking entity so that we're not preyed upon, so that we're not at the foibles, we're not at the picadillos, we're not at the ups and downs of the economy as much as if it were 50 states operating their own banking systems and then somehow getting together to shake hands and make some agreements between them on how interstate banking would be conducted. And so the Fed is there to oversee our nation's monetary policy. Why? Because we need money. We need cash. We need cash to buy businesses like Dr. Bill's new office, to pay our employees, to invest in other things, to buy an extra home, get a car, get a credit card. All these things have to be in place and, again, founded basically on the faith we have in each other. And so our full employment is necessary. It's, it's, it's a goal. It's not a reality. It never has been, never will be. You're not going to get everybody to work. You're not going to ever create enough desirable jobs to get people to work. We want stable prices. We don't want a loaf of bread to cost a dollar today, and then next week it's costing $2 because of inflation. We want to check inflation, and that's another thing that the Fed does. So it supervises and regulates the banking institutions to ensure the safety and soundness of our national banking, our national money, and to protect not only the banks, but you and me as consumers. And you say, well, why do these big banks in the crash, why did they get bailed out? Nobody came and bailed me out. Yes and no. If the big banks had crashed, I forget which ones, uh, uh, Ng, I think, was the insurance company that had gotten into the banking industry, and uh, there were a, a couple of them, Goldman Sachs or Bear Stearns. I can't remember who, who fell down and who stood and who bought who out. But 
we know that that happened. We all watched it, and we all said, how can you take our hard-earned tax dollars and do a $100 billion deal to bail out this bank? Well, if you start looking at what these people, or these banks, I should say, they're not people, they're groups of people, these banks control, have sway over, uh, put influence into, including our economy and our interest rates, and you say, well, if we let them crash and we let the healthier ones come on up, what's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. The money that you and I have invested, some of which may be in company or bank XYZ that has a humongous debt and has to be bailed out because it's too big, that money's going to be gone. And it's going to affect not only you and me, but it's going to affect the entire economy, not just of the United States, but of the world, because we're the stablest of all the monetary systems in the world. And we are the envy of a lot of the monetary systems in the world. In fact, the European Union set up their central bank when they were getting together in the 1970s, along the same lines as ours, not quite as as, uh, well-developed as ours, but they set it up looking somewhat like ours. So the safety of the national banks, it maintains the stability of the financial system, and it decreases some of the systemic risk that we all have to take when we step out into the street, when we open up a check account, or we have a credit card, or we just want to go pay cash for something. The stability of the systems extremely important to us. And if we let two or three big companies and banks fall, that's going to cause shockwaves throughout. Prices will go up. Other banks will be running scared. They're not going to make loans like they used to. The economy will grind to a halt. Basically, that's what happened in the Great Depression in 1929. The central bank, the Fed, said, no, we're not bailing out any banks. This is just a passing phase. It'll be over soon. Well, yeah, soon, a decade, a decade and a half, and the Second World War and central bankers in Europe are the ones who, who started it all and got everybody out of debt. It's not the best way to get out of debt to go to war, but oh well. So this is also an entity, the Fed, that provides services to the U.S. government. It works closely with the Treasury Department in determining the day-to-day interest rates and the long-term rates. It looks at those. It helps the Treasury Department sell bonds and stocks and Treasury bills. And you say, well, why do we do that? Well, because we've got to borrow money. We can't meet all of our debts. We all know that we're deeply in debt as a nation in the 15 or $20 trillion. And how did we get that way? We borrowed money. Well, how does the United States go out and borrow money? Who's going to lend us money? What are we, a, a beggar or what? We sell treasury bills. And treasury bills are a way of borrowing money. You give me $100 million, and I'll give you a treasury bill that's going to pay you 1%. And so in 90 days when that comes to maturity, I owe you $100 million plus 25% of 1% for the time that you had that money in inside of our system. And a big bank overseas says, yeah, I need to do that because I, I got to hold some dollars directly or indirectly so that I don't get swamped 
with euros, that I can buy up euros with dollars, or I can buy Swiss francs or whatever it is, or I can sell these because in Europe now the dollar's worth more than the euro, relatively speaking. So I can sell dollars now, and I can make a little money and get some more euros in my bank, and I need that in my bank because I'm in Europe, and our system is run on the euro, and people want to borrow money. They want to cash in their savings accounts, especially with Greece going under. What are we going to do? We've got to have some cash on hand, guys. The United States says, thank you. We appreciate you lending us some money. This way, the economy can expand and can contract. This way, we have the ability to go to our friends and neighbors around the world or to big money groups like the Sods or to Berkshire Hathaway or to Zurich, Switzerland. And indeed, there are even a few banks, there are foreign banks that have a presence in the United States that are part of our Federal Reserve System. They own stock. They're a minority, but the banks are there. The Deutsche Bank, Santander, the Spanish National Bank, TD Bank, which is a Canadian bank. So there are other banks other than just ours, like Citicorp and and Wells Fargo and all the other big banks that are intimately involved. And that's how it works. So we're kind of going down the road, arm around each other, and one leg tied to the other guy's leg. And so we have to cooperate. We're going to have a mess. We'll have a meltdown. Well, how does the Federal Reserve, if it's a quote, quote, corporation, how does it make money? It's from interest on U.S. government securities acquired through open market operations. Open market means anybody who's got the cash can do business. Well, not anybody. Obviously, drug cartels are not welcome. And in 2006, $36 billion was brought in that way. Uh, The other sources are interest on foreign currency investments. Yeah, not only do foreigners lend us money, but we go and get into their system too, and they pay us interest. And that way we have some input into how their system is run and what their laws are. We've got to work together. There's interest on loans to depository institutions. What do you mean, interest on loans? What does the Fed do? Lend money? Yeah, that's what they do overnight. In short term, they lend money. It's called the overnight fund, and there's the overnight rate. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious, man. Wells Fargo says, look, we got a billion out in credit cards, and we're not going to receive the payments for that debt until Tuesday. And this is Monday, and we have a demand from Santander Bank in in Spain that they want to get some money out, and and it comes to maturity. So we need to borrow $100 or $50 And the Fed says, okay, and they got 2,500 people working at the Fed, and they got some economists and some bean counters, and they quickly look over the books and say, yeah, that's okay. Give it to them overnight. And so overnight, you get charged 1% or 2% or whatever it is. And you pay it back the next day. And this is all done now electronically, of course. But that's how it works. And so the federal bank gets 1% 
365 days in a year, so they get one three hundred and sixty fifth of one percent for lending Wells Fargo a hundred billion overnight. Are we the only people to do this? Heck no. There is something called LIBOR, L-I-B-O-R, that's the London Interbank Overnight Rates. It's the exact same thing. And you say, well, how important is that to us? My home mortgage is tied to LIBOR. It's LIBOR plus 2 or 3%. I don't know, whatever it is. So let's say LIBOR is 1%, and I have to pay 3% on top of that. My home loan cost me 4%. Does this change? Yeah, it changes it was stable for five years, and then after five years, it, it goes to and is tied to LIBOR, to the London Interbank Overnight Rate. So the London banks will lend the Swiss banks or the Italian banks X amount of money overnight or for a week or whatever, and they'll get some interest on it. And the interest that is charged, the interest rate, is what I have to pay plus 3% for the banks here that made me the loan. So these things are all intermeshed. Does that mean that foreigners are running our country? No. Who's running our country? You and me. We're running it. Well, these guys up at the feds, they do what they want, and they make mistakes. Look, they caused the crash in 2007. I'm sure they had something to do with it. So did you and I. We're all in this together. Say, well, I didn't take any money. I didn't borrow any money back in 2000, 2005, 2007. I didn't refinance my house. Did you have it painted? Yeah. Was it a, a company or was it just some little guy that lives down the street? Well, it was, you know, it was a Jim Jones painting here locally. Well, I can guarantee you that Jim Jones borrowed money during that time and he got cheaper money and he got it easier. Because of what the Fed did. And you got your house painted cheaper because he got his money cheaper. And I had this argument with my brother-in-law. Oh, oh, look at what's happening here. Oh, these mortgage rates. And I said, said, Mike, have you done a lot of painting in the past four or five years? He's a house painter. He said, yeah, it's been really good. And I said, well, what do you think people got the money to build new houses and to upgrade their houses to do some renovations? Do you think it just fell out of the air? Well, I don't know. I guarantee you a lot of them went out and borrowed it. They borrowed it in a market that was artificially created, not just by the bankers, not just by the Fed, but also by you and me because of the demands. So... We're getting into it here, and while we're thinking about this, I'm going to go freshen up my coffee. This is Dr. Bill. I'll be right back. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. People in Nepal are cremating the dead and digging through rubble for the missing a day after the massive Himalayan earthquake that's killed more than 2,200 people. 
They have had to deal with series of aftershocks, including a magnitude 6.7 shaker this morning. The Coast Guard is searching the waters off Alabama, where at least four people remain missing after a powerful storm yesterday capsized several sailboats during a regatta. One person is confirmed dead. Some violent behavior during a Baltimore protest last night against the death of Freddie Gray. Following an arrest, it isn't sitting well with the mayor. Stephanie Rawlings-Blake says she is, quote, profoundly disappointed that some protesters engaged in violence. And Iraqi officials say 12 civilians have died today in three car bombings in and around Baghdad. The deadliest attack took place in a busy commercial area. This is SRN News. When the Prime Minister of Israel, our only true ally in the Middle East, spoke to Congress, the President got mad. Some Democrats even refused to attend and wouldn't hear his concerns over a treaty with Iran and their attempt to get a nuclear bomb. What is it that has made Democrats and the President the enemy of our friend? They won't use Muslim and terrorists in the same sentence while they cozy up to Iran and turn their back on our friends. Just keep listening to this station. AM 860, The Answer. Millions of people juice every day to stay healthy, lean, and energized. Juicing rejuvenates, it cleanses, and it can trim you down. But there's just one catch, the cost. Who's got 5 to $10 a day to spend on fresh produce? Who's got the time to buy it, wash it, blend it, and clean it all up? Well, now there's a shortcut so you can enjoy the benefits of organic juicing quickly and easily. It's called OJC, the organic juice cleanse from Purity Products. Best of all, today it's free. Free. That's right. Try a free bottle of OJC with over 20 farm-fresh certified organic superfruits and berries. It's organic juicing made simple. Just scoop, shake, and go, and you'll feel great all day. And we're so sure the organic juice cleanse will work for you. We'll even send you a free bottle. Just call 1-800-364-3714. That's 1-800-364-3714. Call now. 1-800-364-3714. You're writing a Christian book and you want it published. You also know old-fashioned publishers reject thousands of manuscripts each year. Want your book in print and on Amazon? Make it happen. Take control and publish yourself with 21st Century Christian Publishing at Zulon Press. Learn more with your free guide to Christian Publishing. Visit ChristianPublishing.com. ChristianPublishing.com. Publishing is fast, easy, and affordable with Zulon Press. A division of Salem Communications, the same great people who bring you this nifty radio station. We will see a shower or thunderstorm this morning, and the winds here will be breezy and humid with a blend of clouds and sunshine. High 87, partly cloudy skies tonight, and will be warm and humid. The shower thunderstorm, low 77. Expect clouds mixed with sunshine tomorrow. The shower thunderstorm around high 84, and Tuesday mostly cloudy with showers and thunderstorms, high 82. That's your Ranky Weather Forecast. I'm Jeremy Pearson for AM 860, The Answer. Money, I think that's Floyd, isn't it, Chris? 
Yeah, Pink Floyd, man. All right. We're talking about the Federal Reserve System today, if you're just joining the show. And I am at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. This is the answer, WGUL. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve System. One of the guys in the lunch in the doctor's lunchroom uh, had this whole big involved theory about how we don't own our Federal Reserve System. It's owned by uh, the five big families from around the world who are well-moneyed, like the Rothschilds and all that. And um, I, you know, I can't find it anywhere that it, that there's any real proof of that. And it looks like most of the money comes from us anyway to, to fund the Federal Reserve Bank. How do they make money? Well, they make money by lending it to uh, banks, commercial banks, uh, state banks, federal uh, national banks, not federal banks, and even to foreign banks. They make money because of the interest that they charge. Guess how else they make money? They're the check clearing house for our nation. They make a little bit on every check that comes through their system. They get a little piece of it. So you say, why do I have to pay that uh, $5 fee every month for my checking account? Because you got to pay for the clearing houses. So there are the clearing houses within the bank. Then it goes to uh, an intermediate clearing house to make sure it's okay. And then up to the Fed. And the Fed says looks good. And, and they give the okay for the check to be honored. And there's funds transfers. What do you mean fund transfers? Well, let's say that you're uh, Mellon Bank in New York and San Francisco Bank uh, has lent you money and now you've got to pay them back with interest. And you, you, you don't want to send a Wells Fargo truck out there with all that money. Couldn't fit it in there anyway. So you're going to transfer it, but you've got to have an intermediary so you know that it's real. You've got to have an umpire and a referee and a linesman, and that's what the Federal Reserve System does. And, of course, they charge for funds transfers, and the funds mostly are electronic. They have an automated clearinghouse operation. They make money on that. And so they make money several ways, some off of you and me directly from our credit card, and our check cashing and writing responsibilities and duties. And they also make it on interest from loans to other banks and other institutions. And so after dividends are paid to the member banks, and the member banks receive $871 million, again, they have to own stock to be a member, and the stock is not transferable. It's not sellable. You can't do anything with it other than let it sit. And they get 6% interest on the money they put in there. You say, $871 million? Oh, my God, that's a huge amount of money. Well, it's less than a billion. And this is an entity that has trillion dollars going through it every year. This is not a lot of money. And so the profits are deposited in the U.S. Treasury. And in 2006, they were about $28.5, $29 billion. So $1 billion is less than one-twentieth. It's like one-thirtieth of what they made and put back into the U.S. Treasury, our Treasury. And there's also repurchase agreements. There's all kinds of things that are going on at the federal level that we don't even realize that the federal banking system does. And as I said before, when you sell Treasury bills, that are paying 1%, you're borrowing money. So the Fed goes out into the market and says, we're going to sell 
$100 billion worth of T-bills this month, and they're going to have a 12-month maturity. In 12 months, we're going to pay you back, and it's going to be 1% per year. So you're going to have to come up with, the Fed has to come up with that $100 billion plus 1% of that, which is, what, a billion, and has to pay it back. And so the Treasury Department does that, and the Federal Reserve helps out with that. And that's how we get money coming in and money going out, and other countries and other banks are doing the same thing. The Federal Reserve also sets the federal fund rate. I talked about LIBOR, which is the London Interbank Overnight Exchange Rate or or interest rate that's charged, and my home loan's tied to that. A lot of home loans that are jumbo loans or or risky loans are tied to the Federal Reserve Bank's interest rate plus whatever the local banks feel is appropriate for them to make a, a profit and to still stay competitive with other banks. So let's say it's 1% for the feds, and then your bank on top of that adds 3%, and that's the juice, that's what they make, and you pay 4% on your loan. The federal fund rates are the interest rates at which all of the banks that have money deposited into them in the United States or that borrow money, buy and sell, because money's just a commodity. You know, it's like oil. It's like flour or wheat or corn. It's a commodity. So that is the rate. The federal funds rate is the interest rate at which depository institutions buy and sell deposits at the Federal Reserve Bank. And these are benchmarked for overnight rates. And that's, that's what you hear. That's what we hear. Is the Fed going to raise the rate? Is the Fed going to lower the rate? And then one of the committees that's formed statute by statute is the Federal Open Market Committee. And this committee sets a target for the federal rates at a level that it believes will make for stable economy, stable prices, and stable employment. And so there's input to the Board of Governors of the Fed, not only from other committees within the Fed, but also from Congress who oversees this and says, okay. Now, the criticism by some economists is that Congress doesn't learn about what the Fed has done until after it's done. And that may in part be true, but it's probably also a factor of the Congress saying, look, things are going well. We're busy with something else. You take care of it. It's human nature. Well, why didn't Congress have more oversight? They could if they wanted to, but as I said earlier in the show, the problem is, is that the left will inflate the economy and the right will deflate the economy too much. There's that fear that if the left wing gets in and the Federal Reserve is managed directly by Congress, that they'll buy votes by loosening up money and lowering the interest rates and fueling inflation. And nothing, nothing destroys an economy faster than rampant inflation. That's the biggest fear that we have besides the depression on one side. We have to constrain these inflationary pressures. 
especially when employment's going up. You know, when there's fewer unemployed, more people working, more money in the system, more demand for goods. It's very simple supply and demand. If you want a new car, and it's a nice F-150 truck, it's a Lariat, it's loaded up, and they're only making 150000 a year, and there's already a demand from 200,000 buyers, then the price is going to go up. What are you willing to pay? Now, does that happen instantaneously? No, with big items like that, Ford has their own economist and their own bean counters and their own actuarians, or they hire or they job it out to, uh, you know, Smith Barney or some other accounting firm, and they say, give us projections for 2016 for our F-150s. We want to know what the demand is going to be and how we should set our price. And the price is set in part not only by the amount of time and, and material and workmanship they have in it, plus the corporate profits because they got to pay a dividend, plus the corporate structure. They want to know, can we get a little more? Are we producing a product that is desirable and that more people want than we can make for them? And so that's how this goes, and it goes on and on and on. <clears throat> the limitations? Well, it's like any other institution, human institution. You have the Federal Reserve, which is uh, composed of all of us, in some form or another, and it's overseen by the Board of Governors from the 12 separate Federal Reserve banks around the country set up geographically. And they have a certain amount, and you and I have a certain amount of input into it, our faith in the system, our willingness to open up checking accounts or deposit money into money market accounts or into our banking accounts, whatever it is. But there are other things that affect the aggregate demand and supply, not only of Ford trucks, but also of money, 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 because that's what it's all about. Money. Money is the most malleable tool. It is the easiest tool to shape. You can shape money into a nuclear bomb. You can shape it into a trip to Italy. You can shape it into a new house or a remodeling or a car or a bicycle or a hammer or a saw. You can shape money into anything, good and evil, right and wrong. It, it's, it has no emotions. Ultimately, money is paper. The only value it has is that you and I trust each other. That's it. What about the gold standard? I've looked at gold several times throughout my career. In fact, I bought a bunch of Krugerons when I was in medical school. I had taken out a loan, and I didn't, uh, didn't need it all for the, uh, for the tuition because my parents were still helping me with the tuition. Room and board and taking care of the baby and all that, that was my problem. So I bought, a, I think, a 10 Krugerands back when they were still uh, on the market. And I don't know, paid 100 bucks, and I think I sold them for 100 and a quarter. And then gold jumped up in the 80s. I bought that in the early 70s. In the early mid-80s, gold went up to, what, four or $500. And then recently, I think it was as high as twelve or 1300 And so over the years, I've heard all these guys saying, gold's the way to go. Gold, and then William Devane on TV, silver's the way to go. And so occasionally, I'll go look at the gold and how it's fared against inflation. Guess what? 
gold has not kept up with inflation. I could not believe that. In the, in the last century, 1900 to 2000, gold did not keep up with inflation, at least the charts that I saw. So I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I probably didn't do such a, a bad thing that I'm, I made a little profit on it. And I'm not holding something that over the long term is losing value. It loses its value. It's not worth as much if it doesn't keep up with inflation. So these are some of the things that affect the economy other than the Fed. Our taste, our demands, our fears. Some things can be anticipated, such as changes in fiscal policy that the Congress enacts. Taxes are going up or down. So there'll be more free money if the taxes are down. There'll be less free money in the market if taxes are up. And the feds will control more of where the money goes. And so this affects the economy. It affects the rates that the fed charges. It affects how the banks charge you and how they pay you and me an interest when we deposit money with them. And there's other completely unpredictable things that happen. War. Shift in consumer and business confidence. Bill O'Reilly railed against the French after 2001. Essentially, it was a boycott. And a lot of people that I know said, I'm not going to France. I'm not going to buy French wine anymore. If they want to act that way, to heck with them. Well, I went to France a couple of years ago. It's really a whole different thing. I, you know, they're, they're not even aware, most Frenchmen are not aware of all of this and of how involved we are in their economy. They don't know, just as we don't know how much France is involved in our economy, do we? No. You say, well, we must have a trade deficit with them. No. The French buy more from us than we do from them. So, you know, there's a lot more to it than you think. And what you hear somebody say on TV or in the lunchroom or on the radio, you got to take it with a grain of salt unless you go home and do your homework and show that it is or is not true. So on the demand side, there's shifts in consumer and business confidence. So all of a sudden, people who listened to Bill O'Reilly said, I'm not going to France. I'm going to stay home and, and go uh, to a national park, which is what we did. And we saw a couple of national parks, had a ball. Money stayed here. Well, if you had money invested in anything from France, you might have seen it go down. Are there companies that are French? that sell stock in the United States? Heck yeah. Drug companies, wine distributors, all kinds of things come from France. What about their Peugeot? I don't see those sold much around here anymore. I think that was pretty much killed at the turn of the century after 9-11. Saw a lot of them on the streets. New ones over there in France. And they're nice-looking cars. I wouldn't buy one, but that's just me. I like a pickup truck. Then there's the supply side. There's natural disasters, Mount St. Helens, the earthquake in Los Angeles, hurricanes in Florida and in New Jersey, natural disasters, oil spills in the Gulf, man-made disasters, and financial crises. Crop losses. Think of that. Think of all the money that is tied up with mega crops like hard red winter wheat because that's one of our big exports is wheat. That's one of our big money makers. What if there's a drought and the crop is not what it should be? The price of 
Wheat's going to go up all around the world. Canada and the United States produce so much in the way of uh, agriculture and have so much influence on the world that a disaster like a drought can affect the whole world and can affect the whole world's monetary supply. So there's a whole lot of things that come into play, not just what the Fed's charging for interest rates or London banks are charging for overnight interest rates, not just what the big 10 banks have to say, but also the thousands of little banks at the state level. And this all affects all of us in some way or another. We've got Quentin from Clearwater and asked a question and answer uh, he doesn't want to go in the air. He wants to know if there's what? Quantitative easing. Okay, so this is when the Fed loosens up. Now, they do this on what they call the Taylor formula, and Taylor was a California economist in 1990 who looked back at how the economy had been handled uh, by the Fed, and he said, this is what I see. When the difference, I think I've got that formula here. Let me see if I can pick that thing up. The yield curve is the difference between the interest rate on a long-term and a short-term investment. For example, if the federal, if the Treasury Department sells a 10-year bond that's paying 4.76% and the federal overnight fund rates are 5.25%, the yield curve is negative. And if, if that's a negative number. And if that's too negative, if it's going down, then you got to ease up on the money supply. You got to lower the interest rates. Uh, the the monetarists say that the way to handle the economy the best at this point in time in history and in, in our understanding of economies is to ease up when this yield curve is negative and to tighten up when it gets too positive, which would mean that the Feds are dropping the rates too low, or the Treasury Department and banks are and uh, big corporations are selling their bonds at too high of a rate. They're doing too well. And they're competing for your dollar. And so if you go to Ford and Ford's paying 3% and you go over to GM and they're paying 4%, well, if you don't know anything else about the business, you're going to say, GM sounds like a better deal to me. Of course, (laughs) remember one of those disasters hit GM and the bondholders – Got 50 cents on the dollar. The stockholders, they got the goose egg. And the United Auto Workers, they got some percentage of what they had been promised in their contract with with uh, GM and Chrysler, but they didn't get it all, so everybody lost. Now, what if you put your money over in Ford? Ford said, well, we can't make the 3% this year. We're going down to 2% or 1%, or we're not paying a dividend this year. But you still got your bond. You still got it at face value. If you want your money, we'll pay, we'll give you your hundred thousand dollars or five thousand dollars back. So there's a lot of factors involved here, and it's not that easy. But listen, I don't think that we're being controlled by foreign countries any more than foreign countries are being controlled by us. And I love you guys, and I'm glad that you're here, and I appreciate you calling. And by the way, you can call in and ask Chris to ask me a question if you don't want to be on the air. That's perfectly fine, like uh, like our friend Quentin up in Clearwater did. And Quentin, thank you for calling and stimulating us a little bit more. I didn't get to go through everything. Oh, my God, I got carried away, Chris. 
Oh, my God. This is a big topic. This is a big topic. I still got about 30 slides to go. Maybe we'll talk about other aspects of it later at another time. We're going to have to come back to talking about fear and how to deal with that because that's the main problem. We have to learn how to conquer our fears. This is Dr. Bill. I am your Radio MD. Love you guys. See you next week. I'm out of here. And here we go now. What do you think about it, folks? Here it is. How much for it here? 100 is bid to... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.